Good evening. I am Matthias Archibugi, and I will be chairing uh, this meeting instead of David Held, who unfortunately cannot be uh, with us. And I would like uh, to start by thanking Lord Ashdown for accepting the invitation of the Center for the Study of Global Governance uh, to talk, uh, to come and talk uh, uh, about his uh, new book, uh, Swords and Plowshares, that uh, just has been uh, published which is a thorough exploration of the experience of, uh, um, of peacekeeping and peacemaking and the lessons learned from them. And I think that few people can match the, uh, uh, the variety of ways in which uh, 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 Lord Ashdown has been involved in, uh, uh, in peacemaking and peacekeeping from uh, his experience as, uh, as uh, a member of the Royal Marine from the late 50s to the early 70s and his service in the, in the British uh, uh, diplomatic service in the 70s. Uh, and Lord Ashdown then joined, uh, became a member of Parliament in 1983 and became leader of the uh, Liberal Democrats uh, in uh, 1988 and was leader until 1999. And, uh, and then after retiring from, uh, uh, from, uh, uh, British, uh, from the British Parliament, uh, Lord Ashan was from, nine, from 2002 uh, to 2006 uh, a high representative for, uh, for Bosnia-Herzegovina. So uh, a very, very significant uh, experience uh, uh, in, in a variety of, uh, of, uh, of areas uh, related to peacekeeping. And uh, uh, Lord Ashdown uh, will, uh, will talk for, I think, about um, uh, 25, uh, 30 minutes. And Professor Marie Caldo, of the co-director of the Center of Global Governance, will, uh, uh, will respond. Uh, Professor Caldo is the author of a very influential uh, book, uh, uh, New Wars and Old Wars, which has been just uh, published in its uh, second edition. Uh, and she has also been a member of the International Independent Commission uh, to investigate the Kosovo crisis. And uh, she was also the convener of the study group on European security capabilities, which was established by uh, Javier Solana, the high, high representative for the common uh, security and uh, uh, defense policy of the, uh, of the European Union, which produced the human security doctrine for, uh, for Europe. Um, over to you, Lord Ashton. I will do, Matthias. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matthias, um, Mary, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, thank, me, thank you very much indeed for inviting me here tonight. I look around the room and I can see that we have a pretty distinguished audience. Um, makes me feel a bit nervous, actually. I'm reminded of the, um, of, uh, what the words of Jaja Gabor's fourth husband, um, who um, on the eve of his marriage to the great world sex goddess was asked by a member of the press how he felt about the nuptials ahead and said, well, I know what's expected of me, but I'm not sure I can make it interesting. And I think I feel the same way. Um, I emerged from the trenches of Bosnia and Herzegovina, blinking into a world dominated by Iraq and Afghanistan. And it became very quickly evident to me that we were, um, about a year ago, that we were in a post-Iraq world, or we were in the Iraq endgame, not yet a post-Iraq world. And what struck me particularly was that although I think 
after a lot of mistakes, by the way, um, we could remark, we could regard Bosnia and Herzegovina as a moderate success when it comes to post-conflict reconstruction. Um, the pain, disaster, foolishness, and stupidity of post-conflict reconstruction in Iraq was going to be dominating the political scene, dominating people's minds, and was likely to lead to a solution where people said never again. So I decided I'd write a book saying how we could do this, right, how we could have a better chance of success. Actually, my wonderful publishers, um, I have to say that because they're in the audience, but they are wonderful publishers, um, Orion Books, um, I want to call the book The Bandaged Finger because there is a wonderful quatrain from Kipling. It's got one rather brutal line for which, forgive me, um, it's from the poem called The Lords of the Copybook Headings. And it goes, as it is in the animal kingdom, so it is with the race of man. Three things remain constants since social progress began. The dog goes back to his vomit. The sow goes back to her mire. And the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. And I wanted to call it the bandaged finger because that seems to me what, it seems to me what we've done. But the publishers quite rightly said that it has to, you know, one of those marketing things, it has to say on the tin what it does in the tin. Whatever it is, I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> so we decided we'd call it swords and plowshares. But it's about the mistakes we continue to make. And if only we could avoid them, this would be a less painful experience. And it's about what the world might look like post-Iraq. And that's where I want to start tonight. We are now clearly in an Iraq endgame. And it's clear to me also, as to everybody else, that it isn't going to end particularly constructively or particularly successfully. So I think it is time to start thinking about what a post-Iraq world might look like. I think it very likely that we will see a bruised United States turning in on itself and concentrating exclusively on homeland security. Indeed, if you go to Washington today, that's what the air reverberates with. There will be some siren voices calling for a new isolationism. I think that's impossible, and I think most sensible people believe that's impossible in our increasingly interdependent world. But there will be others, and we can hear them, looking for scapegoats for their pain and finding them amongst their closest friends, perhaps especially those in Europe, who in US eyes did not come to the aid of their ally, their principal ally, in its time of need. Some say, I hear it already in Europe, that Iraq marks the apogee of United States power. Well, maybe, though I think we would be very foolish to underestimate the dynamic effect of a new president in the White House, especially if that president happened to be a woman or a black then America's entire image in the world could very easily be transformed. What I think is unquestionably true, however, is that the world is going to be much more multipolar post-Iraq than it was when the US was our only all-dominating superpower. And that could have a profound effect, especially on the whole issue of multilateralism versus unilateralism in international action. Thirdly, we will see, arguably we are already seeing, an increasingly assertive Russia and China, both determined swiftly to move into every space left empty or partially empty by a retrenching America. And fourthly, this will present Western nations with a challenge. How do we respond to these events? And the greatest challenge here will be, I think, to Europe, which will indeed has already begun to find itself facing 
the twin dangers of a withdrawing United States and an increasingly assertive Russia. Think Putin and energy, for an example. For the EU, this will pose both dangers and opportunities. The opportunity for Europe will be to play a larger independent role in world affairs, especially in the Middle East, to move carefully and sagaciously into those spaces the US leaves behind, rather than leaving them to Russia and to China. The danger will come, and it's a danger which I think is all too evident and perhaps even all too likely, the danger will come if Europe responds to a period of US retrenchment with a bout of mindless European anti-Americanism and a failure to realise that the days of taking a free ride for Europe's security on US military strength are over. It will require wise heads and strong wills to manage a change in the Atlantic Alliance while still maintaining its strength. The right reaction from Europe to this new situation will be to strengthen its unity, deepen its institutions, especially those dealing with defence and foreign affairs, and to start taking some rather tough choices about acquiring the instruments of hard defence. Monetary Union was the last platform for the European integration project. The sudden necessity for more integrated European foreign policy and defence policy in a much chillier world post-Iraq looks to me to be the next one. As a liberal and a passionate European, as well as a passionate Atlanticist, by the way, and I see no uh, contradiction between the two, I have to accept that we have regrettably lost the intellectual argument amongst our people for the process of European integration. But I think that the next step could well be that that process of integration is driven not by an intellectual argument, but by necessity. The fourth consequence of the pain of burnt fingers in a post-Iraq world, and the one we concentrate, I want to concentrate on tonight, is likely to be, is possible, will be a determination never to intervene again. Post-Iraq and Afghanistan, Western leaders will be less enthusiastic, their populations less supportive, and the wider international community far less biddable in providing legitimacy for these, let me call them, adventures for the moment in the future. That may be justifiable, ladies and gentlemen. It may even be healthy, especially if it leads to a new understanding of the importance of multilateralism rather than unilateralism in these affairs. But it would be a tragedy if the response to pain in Iraq were to be not how do we do it better, but we must never do it again. If the consequences of bungling the peace which we have in Iraq were to lead to an end to all attempts to promote good governance and the rule of law around the globe. Because I believe, and I think the world shows it, that we are going to need actually to intervene more, not less, in an increasingly globalised and interdependent world. You see, despite Iraq, the revelation of 9-11 still applies. Our peace depends on the extent that we are willing and able to work together to prevent conflict or reconstruct peace in other parts of the world. We live, ladies and gentlemen, I think in uniquely turbulent, dangerous and instable times. I don't suppose there is any time, certainly for the last hundred years or so, when we, the world has faced so many problems all at the, time, at the same time. And as we move deeper and deeper into the era of resource scarcity, overcrowding, global warming and massive shifts, sometimes unremarked, 
in the tectonic plates of power from the nations of the Atlantic shoreboard to the nations of the Pacific Rim. It seems to me this instable mix is only likely to get more potent and more dangerous. Do you know, at present there are some 74 conflicts in progress around the world, the overwhelming majority of which have occurred inside states and between ethnicities. Some believe that this tells us that the era of interstate war is over, that these little brush fire intra-state wars of recent years are the only wars there will be in the future and that the era of great wars is past. I'm not, I fear, one of those. Partly because there is so much dry tinder lying around and far too many firebrands. Partly because interstate competition, especially in the developing world, is not diminishing, it is increasing. And partly because the best structures for fighting big wars, the most powerful ideologies for driving them, and the most destructive weapons for using in them, still remain in the hands of the nation-states. But all major conflicts are preceded by a period of instability. Indeed, one way to look at the world's present little wars is that they are the pre-shocks that always accompany a major shift in the established order. If we can therefore control these better by preventing them where we can, intervening more wisely where we have to, and then reconstructing peace more successfully afterwards, we may make it easier to avoid a wider conflict. And what's more, although we concentrate on Iraq and Afghanistan, actually interventions are not now the exception. They are rather part of the bloodstream of international affairs. Let me give you some figures. Since the end of the Cold War in 1992 or thereabouts, the UN, the United Nations, has, subject to a decision in the Security Council, on average taken a decision to intervene in the domestic jurisdiction of one of its members every six months since the end of the Cold War. And despite the well-known high-profile failures, around 65% of these interventions have been successful in that they prevented a return to conflict. International intervention, according to recent studies, has cut the number of conflicts in the world by half since the end of the Cold War and reduced the number of war deaths by much more than half. So, we should not allow ourselves to be blinded by the consequences of failed practice in Iraq and the difficulties, perhaps even more than difficulties, of Afghanistan. For despite them, this remains overall a safer world because we have been prepared to intervene where we had to and it will be a much more dangerous one if we cease to do this. And what is more, ladies and gentlemen, we do know how to do it. If only we could avoid, as in Iraq, repeating what fails when we should be replicating what succeeds. The Iraq experience, and I'm sad to say to an extent that of Afghanistan too, represents the triumph of hubris, nemesis and above all amnesia over common sense and past experience. In both of them we have to a greater or lesser extent abandoned past lessons in favour of a kind of 19th century gunboat diplomacy approach to peacemaking and it self-evidently isn't working. The things we have to do to increase the chances of success and the things which we should not do because they increase the chances of failure, are not exactly rocket science. And they're definitely not new. 
if only we could remember them long enough to apply them. Avoid the conflict if you can. Prevention is best. It'll be much cheaper that way. But if conflict cannot be avoided, remember it's not over when the fighting is finished. Why is it that post-conflict reconstruction always takes us by surprise? Baghdad is a very clear example. In fact, when the conflict is over, the tricky bit is probably just only then beginning. So, spend at least as much time and effort planning the peace as you do in preparing for the war that precedes it. Make sure your plan is based on a proper knowledge of the country, not your own prejudices, especially its political dynamics. And leave your ideologies and your dogmas at home. It's a mistake to try to fashion someone else's country in your own image. Leave space for them to reconstruct the country they want, not the one you are determined to have for them. It's very foolish to seek to transport lock, stock and barrel Midwest American democracy into a Middle Eastern country. Remember that you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. So don't lose the golden hour after the fighting is over. Dominate the security space from the start and then concentrate first on the rule of law. Make economic regeneration an early priority. Remember the importance of articulating what I call in my book an end state, which you want to achieve in partnership with the people you're working with and one which is expressed in terms which can win and maintain local support. General Sir Rupert Smith's seminal book, The Utility of Force, argues that modern war is fought amongst the people. Well, modern peace reconstruction is fought amongst, fought amongst the people too. And if you can't then win them to support your case, you can't do it. But, and this may shock you, leave elections as late as you decently can. Too early elections simply run the risk of electing the corrupt forces into government. And then you don't end up with a Western democracy. You end up in a criminally captured state. When rebuilding institutions, be sensitive to local traditions and customs. Understand, as I fear we have completely failed to understand in Afghanistan, the importance to the international community effort of coordination, cohesion, speaking with a single voice. And at the end, do not wait until everything as it is as it would be in your own country, but leave when the peace is sustainable. Now, this new approach will require new kinds of national and international architecture to make it work. Cohesion is the key. What is needed is a recognition that multilateralism is in general terms better than unilateralism and an understanding that success can only come from a joined-up cross-agency approach which extends from the bottom to the top, is holistic in its application and views the continuum of peacemaking as a seamless garment stretches from stretching from prevention through the conflict fighting into the post-conflict reconstruction and the final exit of the interveners when a sustainable peace is achieved. We also will need, ladies and gentlemen, a new way of thinking. We have to stop viewing the exercise of foreign policy as a contact sport. Our current policies for peacemaking are dominated by the projection of force. Indeed, we have restructured whole defence forces in order to project force. But what we need to do also is project influence, good governance, the rule of law. Because in the period after the war is over, when you're reconstructing the state, that's what you need to do. 
We intervene as though democracy was our big idea. It's not. We're not even particularly good at it ourselves. Good governance is our big idea. The rule of law is our big idea. Open systems and the market-based economy. These are our big ideas. A stable democracy fashioned to the conditions and the cultures of the country concerned is what comes afterwards. It is the product of good governance, not its precursor. We seem also to believe that nations and democracies can be built at the point of a bayonet when they can only be built through institutions. Reconstruction, reconstructing nations after conflict depends on the ability to win public support by winning the battle not of armies but of ideas. I read an opinion poll the other day, I sent two opinion polls produced by the Ministry of Defence on Basra. When we marched in, British troops marched into Basra, there was 75% support amongst the people of Basra for the work that they were doing. Now there is 95% of the people of Basra who believe there's nothing further to be done and the best thing you can do is leave. We have lost public support. From that position, you cannot win. But it's the concept of the idea that's it's so important here. And that's what we should be projecting. Take Al-Qaeda for an example. Al-Qaeda's potency lies in the fact of its force as an idea, not in its military strength. If we are to win this battle, the language that we use is going to be as important as the effectiveness of our military and security structures. Let me give you an example. Our enemies are not Islamic terrorists, but terrorists who happen to be Muslims. Our key friends are not our Western allies, but that great majority in Islam who share our values and who need our help to win the struggle to prevent their great civilizing, tolerant religion being captured by the forces of darkness, just as our religion has been in the past. You know, on the question of language, I hear our leaders often say we are fighting for Western values. Well, we're not fighting for Western values. We're fighting for fundamental values that are common to all the great religions and all the great civilizations. I mean, that kind of language is not only stupid, it's also historically illiterate. Some of those Hellenic texts, which are the very foundation of European ideals, were lost during the Dark Ages. And where were they discovered? In the Arab universities. Go and look at Siena Cathedral today. Look at the Pavimenti. There you find Virgil and Socrates and Plato. What are they doing on the floor of a cathedral? At the start of the Renaissance, they just rediscovered many of those texts, which have been lost to us in places like Baghdad. Our battlefield here is not just the deserts of Iraq and the mountains of Afghanistan. It is also, and crucially, the multifarious and often invisible networks of global communications. You know, when Al-Qaeda blows up an American Humvee in Iraq, they're not just about killing an American. They're about getting an image onto the Internet around the world in half an hour. Without access to satellite broadcasting, the internet and the international media, bin Laden is just a crazy in a cave. These viral structures are his battleground and we need to make them ours too. We have to find a new way of thinking if we are to reverse this and give ourselves a better chance of peace building in the future. To be successful, however, needs more than the right structures, good intentions, and a warm desire to do something to help. International intervention is a very blunt instrument whose outcomes are not always predictable. It is not 
for the faint-hearted or the easily bored. It needs steely toughness and strategic patience in equal measure. And strategic patience requires strategic vision, and we seem to lack that too. It requires a willingness to commit a lot of troops at the start, especially in the early days of the post-conflict reconstruction, a capacity to provide sustained international support to the end, and an ability to endure a time frame that is measured in decades, not years. And then if you succeed, the only reward for success, if it can be achieved, is that all that expenditure and all that pain will be less than the cost of the war that was avoided or the pain of the chaos which would have ensued if the international community had stayed at home. Meanwhile, leaving early or doing it badly may end up making things not better but worse and nearly always means having to return later to do it again properly. What this means, ladies and gentlemen, is that intervention should not be undertaken lightly or because something must be done and no one can think of anything better. It's important to remember the effect on the interveners as well as the, on those subject to the intervention. It makes the interveners, or is a tendency to make the interveners, arrogant and those who are the subject of the intervention either angry or dependent and often both. The bad news is that as Iraq and Afghanistan shows, intervention is expensive, tough, and difficult to do. The good news is that if we can learn to do it better, and that's what my book is dedicated to, I think we'll get our fingers burnt less and in the process may make the world a much safer and less painful place than it is at present. Thank you. It's a very great privilege to respond to Paddy Ashton, who's been somebody I've admired for many, many years. He's been a voice of both conscience and practical common sense, which is a good combination uh, over a long period. And I can't resist remembering one incident when, in 1992, I was then chair of an NGO called the Helsinki Citizens' Assembly, and we decided to organize a campaign for safe havens in Bosnia. And we asked Paddy if he would speak at the press launch for this great campaign, and no one came. <laughs> it was deep embarrassment. It turned out to be uh, the Queen Mother's 90th birthday, <laughs> and that was of much greater interest to the press than a campaign for safe havens. <laughs> Nevertheless, we sent 300,000 postcards from all over Europe to European Prime Ministers mm. and to David Owen, and I do believe that was a major mm. factor no, in the establishment of safe havens. So we did something. So anyway, now, after all these years, it's, it's very, very good to have Paddy Ashdown back here again and to have watched what he was really trying to do in Bosnia. I do think this book, in a way, is a symbol of the fact that we are in the midst of a profound change of paradigm about security matters. Um, Paddy mentioned uh, Rupert Smith's book, The Utility of Force, which is very much along the same lines. Last week, we had General Dallaire here, 
the general who was in command of UN forces at the time of the Rwandan genocide. And he made a very forceful lecture again on the same lines. Uh, and I think what's great about Paddy's book is that it's very much on the lines of these thinkers or these soldiers, these practical guys, but it goes beyond the use of force. It's a kind of handbook to the whole array of issues that you're likely to face um, in an intervention. So what are my questions? They're really sort of... I don't really disagree with any of it. The first question, of course, is is this too late? Have we made so many mistakes that the whole idea of intervention is discredited? And uh, I, I feel if we'd only had Paddy's book in the early 90s, <laughs> we might not be in the situation that we are today. We might have had his book, but the politicians wouldn't have taken it seriously. But I look around at the moment, and although it's true that intervent actually interventions are not continuing, unfortunately, um, why are we not in Darfur? Well, the excuse is that it's because China and Russia won't allow it. But actually, I think that is as much... Uh, a scapegoat of the reality since actually very few countries are willing to deploy forces in Darfur after Iraq. If we look at the Middle East, it seems to me what's winning is precisely the old paradigm, what Paddy was talking about, the gunboat diplomacy approach, the war on terror approach. And actually, I don't think... Iraq and Afghanistan are just little wars. They are, in a way, the beginnings of a great conflict. And what we're seeing at the moment is the spread of that to Palestine and to Lebanon. And in all of these cases, what you see is the disastrous effect of imposing on these conflicts a traditional great power view. Lebanon and Palestine. Palestine is treated as the war on terror, Hamas is treated as though it was Al-Qaeda, and there's no possibility of really trying to create security on the ground in those circumstances. In Lebanon, the two sides are treated as the West versus Iran and Syria, and again, that's really preventing any kind of conflict resolution peacemaking. So in a sense, I think the great conflict is actually beginning... <laughs> And it isn't going to be like the great conflicts of the past, but it is going to be a great conflict, or it is already a great conflict. And if you add into that sort of deadly mixture all the issues around energy change, energy security, and global climate change, it really becomes even more worrying. It seems to me the issue of energy security is very much about what it does to societies. What happens to raunchier economies, economies that are dependent on primary resources, how they disintegrate? That's the story of Iraq. It's the story of Chechnya. It's the story of the South Caucasus. It's all these wars that we've been looked at in a more exaggerated form. If you look at the crises that are ha going to happen as a result of global climate change, many of the recipes that Paddy has given for intervention are needed for natural disasters as mm. well. And indeed, you have conflicts and natural disasters uh, interconnected. Um, we just did a study of the effects of the tsunami, and of course, 
what was happening in Sri Lanka, what was happening in Indonesia and in Aceh, were very much important ingredients of the whole tsunami stories. Countries in conflict are much more vulnerable to natural disasters. So, in a way, the question is, not only are we too late, but surely this is all the more important. (laughs) (laughs) We need to be able to do more of what Paddy is suggesting, and how can we do more? Well, I've been... One thing I wanted to suggest uh, in the short time available to me is that I think it's quite good if we could give the new paradigm a name because I think that would help to mobilize people. And the name that I've been using is human security. And why do I think human security is a good name? Well, human security differs from national security in that national security is about the defense of borders and states and human security is about the defense or the protection of individuals and communities. So ideas like responsibility to protect is part, are part of human security. But human security links material security and physical security. It's about both being free from political violence and being free from the effects of natural disasters, from health disasters, spread of AIDS, HIV, and from extreme poverty, often associated with war. Um, And I think human security both becomes the case for intervention, to be clear. The only case for intervention, in my view, is responsibility to protect. It can't be regime change. It can't be protecting oil supplies. The only case in our interdependent world is to save the lives of human beings. But equally, and that's where Paddy's book is so important, It tells us something about how we do these interventions. Um, And we've, in in the work that we've done for Javier Solana, we've developed these five principles, which I'll run through extremely briefly because I don't want to take time for questions, uh, from questions. The first principle, which is obvious, is human rights, the protection of the individual. But what that means, particularly if you're using force, and I'm talking about interventions where you'll use an array of tools, as Paddy suggests in his book, is that the first priority is protecting people, not defeating the enemy. And and as Paddy makes clear, that's what went wrong recently in Afghanistan, and that's what's gone wrong in Iraq, and that's what's gone wrong in Palestine. The second principle, which Paddy says a lot about in his book, is what we've described as legitimate political authority. There has to be an authority that can guarantee the rule of law, that can protect people. And so creating the space where you can build legitimacy is absolutely key. And again, this is a point that Paddy makes in his book. The job is stabilization, it's not victory. The job is enabling. It's not, you, no military force can ever solve a political problem. All it can do is to help create the conditions. The third principle is multilateralism. It has to be legal if it's not going to be neocolonialism. It has to be within a framework of international law. It has to be within a framework, the UN, the EU, and so on. The fourth principle, which we've stressed a lot, is bottom-up. It's absolutely vital to consult the local population. And one comment I thought I would make was... Paddy says civil society is very important, but you can't artificially create civil society, which I couldn't agree with more. 
You can't come in with an army of NGOs who teach you how to write proposals and raise funding and create civil society. But what I think you can do is to provide access for people. And if people know that they're saying things which will be listened to, they are more likely to organize themselves. Mm. And I think that's been a huge failing of all our interventions, that we haven't... Uh, Iraq, it's really shocking, uh, the way the women's movement... Iraq's a highly educated society with think tanks, women's movements. None of these were consulted when the Americans went in. And the final principle, again, which is a principle that Paddy makes a lot of, is regional focus. These are conflicts, disasters, whatever, that know no national borders. You can't solve any of them without involving the neighbours. So those are our five principles, which I just thought I'd say because they kind of help elaborate. And the final point I wanted to make was really just why do we need a name, why do we need a set of principles? Well, I think there are two reasons The first is coherence. One of the big, big problems of all international interventions, and again, it's a point that Paddy makes very strongly in his book, is institutional infighting. You know, with European um, interventions, there's the council, there's the commission, there's the member states, but UN interventions are even worse. There are, the agent, and there are the different agencies, there's the Security Council, there's... UNDP, there's UNHCR, not to mention the army of NGOs. And I think in the end it's extremely difficult ever to create institutional coherence because you simply create more and more bodies to coordinate which then become competitive with each other. But the bet what I think you can do is to create conceptual coherence, to make sure there's a storyline that everybody agrees with and everyone feels committed to. So I think that's one reason for developing, if you like, the narrative, as, as Paddy puts it in his book. And the other reason is public opinion. Paddy has a lovely parallel in his book with military thinking. Have I got it right? The advanced battlefield, the rear battlefield, and what's the one in the middle? The battlefield. The battlefield. The <laughs> so public opinion, he says, is exactly the same. You've got to have the advanced public opinion, the public opinion at home, and world public opinion. And I think you need a simple story to convince public opinion. And what human security is doing is exactly what Paddy says in his last paragraph. He quotes this wonderfully moving passage from John Donne, No Man is an Island. And that's actually where we are today. We can't any longer be island states. That's the big lesson of all of this. So we have to care about other people to the same extent as we care about ourselves. And human security is, is about that. It's having a, a policy worldwide which we take for granted in our own societies. And that's what I think we have to really try to sell and make a new, if you like, security paradigm for the next 30 years, which we desperately are going to need. Thank you. Wonderful, Mary. Thank you. I, I, listen, the most important part of today is, is your questions, but I just want to respond to what Mary said, um, and we want to engage in a debate of agreement. 
Um, hands up those who came here to be cheered up. <laughs> Goodo, because you're not going to be. Um, I agree with Mary's view. Uh, there is a terrible, there's a terrible, wonderful line um, from A. Houseman's uh, The Shropshire Lad, which he wrote, I think, in the years before the First World War, but predicting, feeling uh, the chaos that was to come. It's said to have echoed in Churchill's brain throughout the 1930s, and it goes, High upon the hill of summer, lazy with the flow of streams, hark I hear a distant drummer drumming like a sound in dreams. Far and near and low and louder on the roads of earth go by, dear to friend and food to powder, soldiers marching soon to die. I, I think the world is moving into one of those cataclysmic periods of change, even greater than the one which occurred in those long hot summers before 1914, a period when Mary called it the paradigm shift. Um, there is a fundamental shift in the nature of power and the way power is expressed. And I think it's, we, are, we are potentially on the edge of an extremely turbulent and very dangerous decade. And it is exactly as Mary has suggested, that concatenation of events that brings it together. It is the multiple challenges, huge challenges, and puny leaders, by the way, um, that now confront us, the challenge of global change, of an overcrowded world, of resource conflicts, of this incredible shift of power away from the nations of the Atlantic shoreboard to the nations of the Pacific Rim. I don't think it's impossible we work out, wake up in the next 10 years and find that we're not the first economy in the world any longer, we're the second economy. And if you think this, you think, just think about what that means for the governance of Western democracies. You think our democracy is held together by democracy, uh, our state is held together by democracy? Forget it. It's held together by rising, the, the prospect of rising prosperity. Uh, and I think uh, the kind of world we're moving into, let alone the rise of fanaticism in the world of faith, the decline of respect for the institutions of government, the vanishing of creeds in the Western world that hold us together and predict the way that we behave one towards another. Um, so we are in a, in, a, in a period, I think, which is extremely dangerous. Um, I mean, I'm not sure any of us have thought yet about Mary calls this, what has she called it? The, 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 great, the great conflict has already started. It's quite easy to draw that conclusion. If we fail in Afghanistan, and I think, by the way, we are failing in Afghanistan now because of a failure to speak with a single voice, we're putting into Afghanistan 1 25th the amount of troops and one fiftieth the amount of aid per head of population that we put into, into Kosovo and Bosnia. And we won't even coordinate. And I was speaking to one of Karzai's people the other day. He said, I don't know, you know, I'm, the, the entire international community is acting bilaterally. I haven't a clue what to do. They come in and tell me contradictory things every five minutes. There's no strategy. There's no cohesion. There's no single voice. We're losing. If you lose in Afghanistan, the consequences of that are absolutely horrific. I mean, I had one senior Amer uh, British general um, very well respected, said to me the other day, I worry that NATO is going to be as damaged by failure in, in Afghanistan as the UN was by failure in, in Bosnia. But that isn't the thing that really worries me. I don't think it's possible then to contain Pakistan. And I think you, are, you will see the beginnings of the development. Mao Zedong used to call the First and Second World Wars the European Civil Wars. Not a bad phrase for it, by the way. Um, and I think what you could see is a regional civil war between Sunni and Shia, which extended right across the whole region. Um, and I think you know, we are, these are really dangerous moments. So it, it may be it's too late. I don't think it is just, but I think we've got to start getting this right, and that's what we're talking about. Um, I, I have one thought for, for you. Mary calls this human security, and I like the phrase. 
I think the issue is something slightly, well, let me put a different slant on it. I think the big fact of our time is the migration of power outside the institutions created to control power. And those institutions are the institutions of the nation state. And if you think about how power has migrated onto the global stage, where the institutions capable of controlling it are either non-existent or too weak, and you think it's a massive shift of power. Now, this happens in history from time to time. The Industrial Revolution shifted the basis of power in Britain. We had to have an 1832 Reform Act to widen the franchise because governance has to follow power. Uh, and the fact that we did it saved us from the revolutions of 1848 that set alight the rest of Europe. I think that kind of migration of power has now taken place. And if you see the growing power on the global stage, the power of the internet, the satellite broadcasters, or the transnational corporations, or the international terrorists, or the international criminals, of, as Mary says, the, the globalization of challenges, which are now beyond the challenges that nation states can cope with, then I think you reach the conclusion that the challenge for our time is to bring governance to the global space. Because the rule of history is that if power migrates outside the institution is created to control it, chaos, and sometimes more than chaos, war, conflict, follows. And what you have to do is bring, you have, where, where power goes, governance has to follow. So the challenge for our time, it seems to me, is to bring governance to the global space. And that's what this is about. It's about creating a system of international law. It's about creating a system of legitimization of international action. Uh, and so on. And this is one small part of that large agenda, which comes down at the end, as Mary suggests, to the individual security of the individual human being, which is more dominant as a concept perhaps today than, than the security of nation states in the old form. I suspect, Mary, I suspect, we are seeing the beginning of the end of the 18th and 19th century version, the utility of the 18th and 19th century version of the nation state. Uh, and we're going to have to start thinking about supranational institutions if we're going to govern the space effectively. I would like to thank the, uh, Lord Ashdown, Professor Calder, for a most enlightening uh, uh, exchange, and uh, I would like to invite you to, uh, to ask questions. Please uh, uh, keep in mind that this uh, event is being recorded and will be made available on the LSE website. I see one hand raised over there and then one over there. Good evening. Uh, Jamie Brockbank, Department of War Studies, King's College London. I just wanted to discuss the responsibility to protect in the context of Africa. Um, you know, I think the responsibility to protect, I admire its sentiments, is predicated on this notion of, of, of changing sovereignty, um, as you spoke about. But a large number of you know, uh, rulers around the world and states are quite resistant to some of these Western notions of sovereignty and a, a kind of universal kind of discourse of human rights. I mean, if you take the African Union, for example, you know, as we've seen over the last years over Zimbabwe, for example, um, rulers are quite happy to sort of rally around as such against, uh, you know, in support of, uh, you know, a fellow black African ruler, uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, and, and they sort of talk about a discourse of, you know, imperialism or whatever else. And you, you see what's going on in Sudan at the moment as well, where there, to a certain extent there is... Um, you know, a lot of the African nations are, there is a certain amount of solidarity. And I'm just wondering about the African Union. Um, so the African, a lot of emphasis has been put on the African Union taking responsibility for African problems, uh, for the African peacekeeping force. Do you think this is really viable um, if countries perhaps aren't going to take responsibility for their own problems? Um, and if you could just discuss that tension, really. Um, 
R2P, responsibility to protect, uh, actually it post-eventum legitimizes the intervention in Kosovo. The first time we used R2P, by, by definition, the Kosovo intervention, I think, was probably illegal. The fact was that it had massive support across the world, including in the UN Security Council, and therefore it went ahead. But it probably was outside the legality of the time. By the way, the book has a chapter discussing international law. Um, R2P, after the, after the event, um, uh, incorporated in international law the, the concept of responsibility to protect. And it was... Um, it was um, laid down in the, um, in, the, in, the, in the summit, the global summit. The point I think I, I, I need to make to you before coming on to, you know, does it apply in Darfur, is that, you know, it, we are assembling international law at present, rather like English common law. It's assembled untidily, painfully, and sometimes irrationally, and little by little by precedence. Um, the fact is that we have not on the responsibility to protect in Darfur is the responsibility to protect first outing. We could have acted and we haven't and Mary's made the point. I mean, we could very easily have declared a no-fly zone. Um, one squadron of French jets from Djibouti could have done that. The argument that says you can't then differentiate between UN aid aircraft and the MiGs, or the aircraft being used by the government to assist the Janjaweed militia is complete nonsense. We do that every day in Kosovo. Every day when we had a no-fly zone. Um, so I simply don't accept that. On the other hand, the fact that we have manifestly failed to enact responsibility to protect in Darfur doesn't mean to say that it will. That that's the end of it. The responsibility to protect isn't going to be, uh, isn't going to be uh, a, 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 a functioning concern. I think it's still possible to do this. There is signs that the Chinese are beginning to realise the position they've taken is not the right position in Darfur. So I think we have to wait and see. Watch this space. The first signs are not very good. Um, but uh, I don't think it's over yet, and I think it would be a tragedy if we lose the concept of responsibility to protect for all the reasons that Mary suggested. On the question of, um, of, of the African Union, I didn't respond to Mary's point. I mean, is it too late, she said? Will people ever provide troops for intervention again? I think the reality is that it is exceedingly likely and probably a very good thing that there will be another intervention that does not have the uh, legitimization through a UN Security Council resolution. I don't think domestic populations of Western countries will tolerate their government operating in the way that, was, that happened over, uh, over Iraq, neither here nor in the United States. So de facto, I think that, and I regard this to be a very good thing, I think that legitimation for, for interventions, certainly ma major interventions, will now go back and reside in the, in the UN Security Council. And practical politics means that the leaders of, leaders of Western democracies will not persuade their people to support them unless that happens. Second thing is that increasingly, Western countries, increasingly the permanent five members of the Security Council, are jolly good at saying we will intervene over there without having any intention of sending their own troops there. And by the way, the UN troops who go there are about one-twentieth as expensive as NATO's troops. But then I think there is a strong possibility that in many cases the UN will not be the force that intervenes, but it will subcontract that intervention to other coalitions of the willing, of which NATO is the most obvious case. But of course NATO is not going to go into Sudan for reasons that you just said, which means that you have to rely on other regional security organisations to do this. The Australian-led ad hoc organisation that did the operation in East Timor, the African Union in Africa. If that's your policy, and I think it could be, and maybe it should be, then one of the functions 
of the United Nations, perhaps working through the newly established Peace Building Commission, should be to raise the capability of those regional organizations like the African Union for us to validate and go about training these troops to be able to do intervention on behalf of the UN. Where do I think we're going to? I think we're going to a position where the UN ceases to be the intervener or manager of executive action of first choice. I think the, interven uh, the UN increasingly becomes the validator of international law, of international action, the legitimizer of international action, the developer of international law, the guardian of international law, but will from time to time, in difficult circumstances, subcontract action to properly structured and properly controlled coalitions of the willing. I think that's the direction we're probably going in. Mary, do you want to add anything? No, that's... Gentlemen over there. Um, this question comes from when I was in Zagreb reading the Federal Tribune with very unfair criticism, that, at least as I saw it, of you in Bosnia. Um, and uh, the one thought is that I'm British and I see the world probably in very much the same way as you. Um, and there is the problem, and I think it's a, it is one of the crucial problems of any intervention, is that outsiders will never fully understand um, um, the local situation until they've had a very long learning experience. And that is even more, obviously, you know, I think the crucial one of in Iraq... And I don't think it was a question of 19th century politics. It was um, Bremer seemed to think that he had la landed not in Baghdad, but in Berlin, in oh, not Berlin, in, in um, West G Germany in 1946. Um, oh, if only, if only. <laughs> and um, the, the, this is why I don't agree with you on elections, because are you right? The people who are going to be elected are going to be crooks. They're going to be, you know, extremists and everything but at least that is a reality which any intervention has got to face up with. And ultimately, what did the British do in Basra? They put into power in Basra the, you know, the, 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 the old um, um, sort of the politicians that were available who would have been the people who would have got elected anyway. Well, it's a very tricky issue. I mean, first of all, Mary puts her heart in it, and you infer it as well, that the, the, the dilemma for the intervener and it's one which I can't pretend we always got right in Bosnia, is how do you intervene strongly to get things going quickly, to establish the rule of law, to give people security, on the other hand, create space so that you allow them to take the decisions and you don't build up dependency. And you know, that's a very fine judgment, and you don't always get it right. I can't pretend I always got it right in Bosnia. In Bosnia, I was forced to move much faster than I would have wished to have moved brutally fast because we'd wasted seven years and we needed to build the Bosnian state in some kind of form as quickly as possible because I knew that the world was withdrawing troops, was withdrawing aid, it was withdrawing will as attention shifted to Iraq and Af Afghanistan. And we had one opportunity and we had to move brutally fast. But I can't promise that I got all of those very difficult judgments, uh, judgments right. Um, if only Bremer was as good as, the, as General Lucius Clay. I mean, I have to say to you that uh, I've just done a program for BBC World Service um, in which we look into the, the, the post-World uh, War II reconstruction of Germany. The paradox is that it was the British and the French who were appalling, colonialist in attitude. They shifted the colonial service in. They governed the Germans as though they were Ghana. 
um, uh, and uh, they acted the most outrageous way. I mean, there was one British colonel sacked Adenauer at one stage. Um, they refused uh, to, um, to uh, think about reconstructing the German economy. They actually moved in it lock, stock and barrel to move German equipment out, including even um, 4711, the Cologne, Eau de Cologne uh, recipe, which they claimed to be a war secret, in order to <laughs> shut down the German industry so it wouldn't be a competition for the British. The people who knew how, what was going on and who actually began to reconstruct the German state were the Americans. They were far more enlightened in the German, post-German reconstruction. And of course, eventually you had the Marshall Plan and eventually we had to swim in behind them, largely because the Cold War started and we suddenly realized the Germans shouldn't be made into a subservient nation, uh, but they should be made into powerful friends and partners in the Cold War. So if only Bremer had been as good as General Lucius Clay, who goes down, in my view, as one of the world's really good post-conflict reconstructors, uh, reconstructors, along perhaps with, with MacArthur. On the question of elections, look, it's a very tricky question, this, because the interveners, when they come in, are going to be faced with a question of legitimacy, as you quite rightly say. Uh, you know, what are you doing in our country? Why are you governing? Why can't we have elections? I didn't say you leave elections late. I said you leave them as late as you decently can. Now, if you're in Iraq and you're fighting a battle for legitimacy against an insurgency, you have to have that early because it may not be comfortable for you, but you have to have it early. But insofar as you can build the structures of the state, create a secure envelope, establish essentially the rule of law, and establish, you know, democracy is not just about elections, it's about other things too. It's about checks and balances in government, it's about control of the, it's about the creation of the civil society, it's about a free media and free press. Elections are only one of the things. In Bosnia, we had one policy, which was elections, because we wanted to get out early. So we had six elections in seven years. Uh, and people got very fed up with elections. And all that happened was you elected the corrupt forces that were running the war into government. And then you had not a, as I said, a, a Western democracy, a democracy, but a criminally captured state. And that's what we discovered when we started work there in 2002. Interestingly, in Germany, the first nation, national elections were not held until 1949 five years after the war ended. Now, there was total victory. It was a, you know, you're starting from a blank sheet of paper. You had more room for manoeuvre. Uh, but it is better, if you can, to construct the other structures of a democracy, free press, uh, a clean political space, uh, above all the rule of law, and to hold your elections later rather than earlier, if you can, as late as you decently can, is the, is the key, it seems to me. Maybe I'll add this time. Um, I don't disagree with any of that, but I just want to add a couple of points. One is about Iraq, and uh, I, I think they had an image, the Americans, of what it was like after 1945, mm. yeah. which wasn't very close to reality. And what I find absolutely extraordinary about Iraq is the way it conformed to their, if you like, video games, mm. their image of what Iraq was. I mean, I think... Um, both Saddam Hussein and, Gen and George Bush had a common interest in portraying Iraq as this totalitarian state in which the, it, there was a dictator who could only be overthrown by force. Mm. They also had a common interest in making the world believe that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. But the reality was something completely different. Saddam Hussein was after... 20 years of sanctions of a terrible war with Iran where, which was like the First World War 
it was a really weak state on the verge of collapse. And so it was completely different from what the Americans imagined. And here I have one little disagreement with what Paddy mm. says in his book. He says the invasion was a magnificent, quick military victory. I think the invasion was one of those video game exercises because actually what happened was they dropped leaflets in Arabic to the Iraqi army saying, put on your uniforms and go home. And they all take off your uniforms and go home. And they all did that. So they actually didn't meet any resistance. They met a tiny little resistance from a group called Saddam's Martyrs, which uh, General Wallace said prophetically, this isn't the enemy we war-gamed against. Um, (laughs) But essentially, it was an exercise. They walked into Iraq with the consent of the Iraqi people. That was what happened. And they didn't control anything except for the bases that they'd created. And yet they understood it as occupying Iraq in the same way as the Allied forces occupied Germany. So there was a huge mismatch. So even though, you're right, they couldn't have known Iraq like somebody who lives in Iraq. They could have known it a little bit better. Oh, much better. (laughs) Much they deliberately got rid of. A huge amount of work had been done post-conflict reconstruction in Iraq by uh, by the State Department. And and Rumsfeld threw it out like six weeks before the invasion. It's just incredible. I think Jay Garner was telling me they only had four people who could speak Arabic um, in in, in his team to reconstruct Iraq, which is 300 strong. That was it. Anyway. That was one thing. The other thing I wanted to say something about was the issue of elections and local people. When we presented our report to Javier Solana, he said, the only bit of your report I'm slightly worried about is the bottom-up bit. And we said, why? And he said, I'm afraid you might get the wrong bottoms. (laughs) (laughs) And what he meant by this was, of course, the militia groups and all of these other guys. But to say... That, I mean, I think they win elections by fear. I don't think these guys are necessarily popular. You don't know what people really think because they live in a situation of total fear. These guys have taken to the guns because they can't mobilize popular support, because they aren't popular, and people vote for them because of fear. And that's why having elections when that fear continues actually entrenches those guys. And it seems to me whether or not to have elections is not a sort of principled thing. The principle is what's the best way to create a legitimate government. And elections in a situation of fear where the worst guys get um, elected uh, seems to me a really bad idea, a bad way to create legitimacy. Interesting, actually, I hope Paddy won't mind me reminding him, but in the middle of his term, an NGO called the European wrote this pamphlet called the European Raj yeah, absolutely. and uh, accusing Paddy of being a new imperialist. And I thought, actually, that's what you need at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that if the bottoms are the militias and the criminals and so on, then you need a benign imperialist. Preferably a liberal. Preferably a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> Gentleman with a blue shirt. Lord Ashton, um, nice to talk to you again. Last time we spoke, you um, stopped me in a street corner looking for directions to Herbert Crescent in October. So um, <laughs> I remember it well. Indeed. Um, 
I was lucky enough to spend some time in, in, in Bosnia in the autumn, and when people worked out as British, the, the question that I was most often asked was, what do you think of, of Lord Ashdown? Mm. I, I'd reply he was the leader of the most progressive party in British politics. Um, but let, let me throw the question over to you. Um, what do you regard as your greatest successes and your greatest failures in Bosnia? I, I can't tell you. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think that I'm very um, capable. I mean, you're not very good at knowing your own successes. You know your own failures a bit better, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about those if you like. Although I'm reminded of Michael Heseltine, who once said, I'm too wise to know that I've not made any failures, but I'm also too wise to tell you what they are. Um, but we set out, if you read the book, you'll find that... Um, that's a good plug, isn't it? Read the book, okay, guys? <laughs> buy it, okay? Buy it best. Read it if you can't afford to buy it. Um, it's all about theory, and, and Mary's right, but at the end, there is two annexes, which annex A is the plans that we laid, and I've got, I think, all of the guys who work with me um, in, in, in Boston. We, there's Julian Aslett, about Julian Braithwa, Ian Patrick, and Ed Llewellyn, somewhere in here. And we sat in a little loft in the Foreign Office, and we made a plan about what we'd do. Uh, and we, we, we analysed what was necessary, and we, we came to the conclusion that Bosnia had been stabilised, grass a Dayton, but the next task was to build a functioning Bosnian state, and our time was very limited because of the withdrawal of troops, withdrawal of money, withdrawal of will, and therefore we laid down a plan of what we wanted to do. And then Annex B is one year taken from my diaries of what it's like to do this job, in the intimate detail, not the whole four years, but because that would take up the whole book. Uh, and would, would be very boring, but it gives you an idea of what the bump and grind of this thing is and how your ideas are amended by realities you meet on the ground. I say at one stage that you know, the trick of, of peacemaking, as indeed life, is to be able to differentiate between what you like to do and what it's possible to do and make those difficult judgments. I think at the end of this, pro we set out, uh, in my first opening speech I said, I wanted to, to make, put Bosnia irreversibly, the task for my mandate, I use this phrase, was to put Bosnia irre irreversibly onto the path to statehood and irreversibly onto the path to the European Union. At the end of our four years, we did that, I think. Uh, in Bosnia, uh, we created the structures of a light-level state. We combined the two armies into a single army, uh, under state control, three intelligence services into a single intelligence service under parliamentary scrutiny. We, we created a single uh, taxation system in place of the fractured sales tax, the VAT system, in record time, by the way. Uh, we created uh, a single judiciary uh, and a single codex of law uh, to catch criminals. We created some state courts that were able to try even the highest in the land for corruption. We reunited the city of Mostar. Um, so we did quite a lot of things, I mean, on the surface. The question is, you know, building institutions is the easy bit. I keep on saying that states are made up of hardware and software. The hardware is the institutions. You can do those with a bit of skill, a bit of power, and a lot of luck in a matter of four or five years, some of those institutions that are necessary. But changing what's in here, the software of the state, what's in people's minds, takes a long, long time. You can't do that. That takes it much longer. Um, so I think broadly, we, with some some greater successes, some lesser successes. I think our biggest success may well have been VAT, established a VAT system nationwide, and the combination of the two armies under single state control, because from that moment on it became impossible to have a war between them. Um, so I guess that was the sort of successes. My failures um, are probably too many to, to number. I, 
I don't think we paid as much attention to education as we should have done. I subcontracted that out to the OSC. It turns out to me that education is really important. I have a sort of view that you will not sustainably reconstruct a nation after peace until the wartime generation have either died or left power. And that means you do have to bring on your younger uh, elements. And I, I think we pay less uh, attention to education. I think within the trilogy of Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Serbs, the Croats, and the Bosniaks, I was... I think properly concerned and concentrated on the relationship between the Bosniaks and the Serbs because that was where the tension would come. I suspect we probably paid less attention to the Croat element than we should have done. Um, and I made lots and lots of other day-to-day -day, uh, mistakes. The, the great genius uh, of, of the wonderful people of Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, who uh, you know, uh, I have a very high affection for, um, was that they tolerated the mistakes made by this sort of mad foreigner with a with a with a with a, with a, a title out of Gilbert and Sullivan uh, <laughs> and powers that should make a liberal blush um, blundering around their countryside um, trying to help them to build a state and in the end you know they were jolly hospitable and kind to us and, and were patient enough to allow the mistakes I made uh, I suggest we take two questions together yes the two gentlemen on top um, it seems to me that Lord Ashdown's depiction of the changes of power in society today are moving in opposite directions to his proposed solution. On the one hand, you've got um, power moving towards a more micro-based so units, if you like, in terms of individuals, the internet, and localized terrorist groups. And yet your solution is for more supranational governance. And those two seem to be slightly contradictory to me. Um, uh, I, Rami, I can't see who's speaking. Could you put your hand um, up? Up, yeah. up there. Ah, <laughs> that's the reason I was looking. I was looking around. No, I don't think they are. Um, look. Why, if you take a look at the, at the nation-state, what the nation-state did was to settle power at the centre of the nation-state. That started with uh, Louis XIV, I guess. Uh, and it became centralised power, which ran the nation-state. Uh, if I'm right in saying that the nation-state no does no longer have the utility that it had in the 18th and 19th, particularly the 19th century, then what you need is a new settlement of power. And you see the nation-state now attacked from both levels. First of all, many of the things the politicians of the nation-state, including these, pretend that they can do to their electorate, which is provide everything that their people want, is manifestly not true, because their destiny is at least in part controlled by global forces. The Chancellor of the Exchequer is no longer got free movement to do what he wants to do with the nation's economy. He has to respond to global markets. But it's also being attacked from the bottom, because individual people living within communities are simply no longer prepared to give the centre the power that they... And that doesn't just apply in Britain. It applies in every Western democracy, which is facing those kind of... De that, that similar democratic crisis, a crisis of belief in the functions of government, because it's too distant, it doesn't listen to them, and it is not sensitive to their needs. So what I, what I think I'm saying is that one thing I'm pretty clear about, and that is the institution of the nation-state in terms of governing ourselves and ordering the world uh, is no longer, uh, long, no longer has, I don't say it'll vanish, it no longer has the utility it had. And what you need is a new settlement of power. Some of that power will have to go up to supranational institutions. How else do you cope with um, global pollution, with global warming, with, uh, with the problems of global poverty, uh, with global terrorism, with global crime, except to create some institutions at the supranational level. But a lot of that power also has to be passed down into communities. So the devolution 
of power back down into communities so they take their own judgments about their own uh, about their own the, the fundamentals of their own way of life is part of the pr proposal so my proposal is not simply the creation of supranational institutions it is about a resettlement of political power some up some down some will remain at the global at the nation state level so I quickly jump into the uh, underlying question. Excuse me, there are quite a few people that uh, would like to ask questions. Yes, thanks. Hello there, former student here. My name is Mohammed. Um, I came interested in politics during the times of John Major and Paddy Ashdown, and it said a lot about the caliber of politicians that we had before. Um, my question is, is there a relationship between um, the image during the end of colonialism in Africa and the events in the Middle East, uh, there seems to be a voice for change in the Middle East, same as it was in Africa um, in the late 1950s. And at the moment, uh, Mary said, we need to concentrate on the bottom up. So are we negotiating with the wrong people? Because at the moment, uh, there is a change in uh, Palestine. Um, in the next 10 years, we'll see a change in Egypt and Pakistan. So are we negotiating with the wrong people? I don't know. Um, I, I put it, you're all looking pretty gloomy. <laughs> when, I was, when I was first elected um, Member of Parliament for Yeovil as a young aspiring Liberal candidate, we used to have to go along to meetings. There is a point to the story, I promise you. Um, uh, and uh, this, the most frightening meeting in an election is the meeting with farmers. And you go into a room and it's full of farmers. And I have to tell you, not many of them are Liberals. Uh, and on one occasion, the room was full, about 300 farmers in the room, and they asked me all sorts of complex questions. Like, and one man from the back put his hand up and said, what do we think about the price of barley then? And I said, um, I, I don't know anything about the price of barley. He said, I'm voting for E. I couldn't work out why he was going to vote for me. He came up to me afterwards, and I said, uh, I said to him, well, you, know, you asked me a question, I couldn't answer it. Why are you voting for me? He said, us asked the other two about the price of barley. They went on for half an hour, and us doesn't grow barley within 200 mile a year, he says. <laughs> I always promised that I would, if I couldn't answer a question, I'd say so, because it seemed to be rather better. I don't know if we're negotiating with the right people, except this. And again, it's a point I make in the book. You, you may not like the people who have democratic legitimacy and who have been elected, but by and large, it's a rather foolish thing if you don't speak to them. Um, because if you're living in the world, if the new paradigm shifts, as Rupert Smith argues, and I say in the book as well, I agree with the analysis, is that you have to win public support, then you have to speak to the people who've won public support. You can't afford not to. Now, maybe if you're the European Union, the United States, you can say Hamas may have won public support, but we're still not going to speak to them. Maybe it's possible, though I think it's extremely rarely wise, but if you're the government of a country, and in effect you are the de facto government if you're the intervener, you can't do that. You have to speak to the people who carry democratic legitimacy and democratic support. And we discovered that in Ireland. We had to speak to the representatives of the Catholic population. And if some of them resided in Dublin, we had to bring Dublin into the process. Uh, uh, and uh, I think if you look at, let's say, read the revolt on the Tigris, and you'll see the danger in a position like, uh, like Iraq of uh, say, simply saying, ignoring the fact that this bunch of people have democratic legitimacy, but we don't like the look of them very much, so we're not going to speak to them. You do not have that luxury if you're the government of a country. Uh, and uh, so I think that's the best answer I can give you. 
Since there are quite a few people uh, wanting to ask questions, I would ask uh, uh, Lord Ashton to take three questions. Three. By this uh, young lady, yes, with a cardigan, and this gentleman over there, and uh, by Dr. Kostavitsova over there. Uh, my question is, right, my question is, um, you said that interventions should not uh, cease to exist or, or happen. Um, my, my argument is, uh, isn't it better prior to any intervention to develop <coughs> type of, um, for example, um, early warning reports or to have a regional um, monitoring, yeah. for example, in order to teach those countries um, how to negotiate, uh, to teach them how to um, have a political dialogue instead mm. and to straight, straighten their institutions so they can absorb the conflict Absolutely. by themselves instead of... And I have um, a question also to Professor Caldor um, uh, to comment a little bit about, for example, the conflict in 2001 in Macedonia uh, even though it was not a classical intervention, but there were also local actors uh, involved. And um, is, it, is that a good way, for example, a good example of how? Thank you. Now, uh, this other gentleman here in front. Yes, thanks. Thank you. Um, Esteban Davis, uh, MEC student here at the LEC. General uh, Deleur last week, uh, he said in his talk that the main difference between the intervention in Kosovo and in Rwanda was that the Kosovans were white and European, whilst Rwandans were black and African. Uh, do you think this plays an important aspect in either the failure to intervene in Darfur or the low aid that is being given to Afghanistan? Thank you. Dr. Kostavitsova. Actually, when uh, I was doing field work in Bosnia, one Bosnian told me that you should run for the elections because if you did, you would be voted in the office <laughs> as people were uh, sort of um, uh, disappointed and disillusioned with their own corrupt uh, party elites. But actually, that leads into my question. We talk about sort of uh, uh, the question of accountability, which was actually the Achilles heel of uh, uh, all international interventions and sort of the, the example of Basra that you mentioned also illustrates that. Don't we need a new architecture, institutional architecture to sort of uh, feed from the bottom up into the, intervention, into the uh, protectorates? Uh, three fascinating questions. Early warning reports, yes, and I cover this quite quite a lot in in, in the book. Um, I mean, prevention is better than cure. Uh, and by the way, um, uh, prediction is the mother of prevention. Uh, if you can prevent a conflict by spotting failed states beforehand, strengthening their institutions, etc., then you have saved yourself a huge amount of difficulty and expense and pain. And there are mechanisms for doing that. Take a look at the work of Hoffler and Collier, uh, who have now got quite a good matrix for spotting when states are in danger of conflict or, or failure. Quite a good matrix that can tell you the ones that are able to do, that, able to do so. Of course, you have to apply intelligence to this. Um, but 
absolutely that the, the, the international community should be in the business of spotting, preventing, uh, spotting potentially failed states, spotting conflict, and doing what they can to prevent. And by the way, I quote in the book Macedonia, which I was closely involved in, a large chunk of my diaries there, um, in, in which we were trying at the last minute to prevent the Macedonian army attack, attacking. I think Macedonia was a brilliant success. By the way, I didn't think it could be done. I, mean, I thought we could not prevent Macedonia tipping over into what would have been the worst of the Balkan tragedies because it would have drawn in probably Turkey and, and Romania as well. Uh, so, uh, but it was prevented and it saved us from disaster and catastrophe in, of an even greater nature arguably than, than in Bosnia. So we should be doing that. There's a case I quote in the book of a British ambassador in a Caribbean country who spotted that this country was being uh, overrun by the corrupt structures of the drug cartels in Colombia, and the British government, working with the local government in this country, uh, used the full panoply of its resources, aid, uh, projection of influence, governmental influence, special forces, in order to be able to sustain and reform the institutions of that country, uh, and that uh, takeover did not take place. Prevention, and we should be doing a lot more of it. Uh, so it's not only, it's not only possible it's also necessary. On Kosovo and Rwanda, yes. I mean, I do think we have to remember that Kosovo didn't have oil. There wasn't a, an economic reason for, uh, for the invasion of Kosovo. I remember a Kosovo girl say, saying to me at Kukish after Operation at Horseshoe had had its worst effect and the place was awash with Kosovo refugees, you know, I was always told NATO only went to war for oil, but now you're going to war for me to get me back into my home. There was a moral quotient to that, and I think it was probably the first time that happened. But you're probably right in saying it was possible in Kosovo where it wasn't in Rwanda. What I'm clear about is that Rwanda was one of the, along with Srebrenica, was one of the terrible failures. In the book I discuss um, the development of international law and compare this with the uh, criteria for a just war drawn up by people like Thomas Aquinas and Grotius, etc. And very interestingly, they, the, the, where the international law has arrived today is quite similar to what those early Christians arguing the, what, what, what identified a just war drew up as their criteria as well. And these are the criteria that it is a just war exists, international intervention is legal broadly when the following. Uh, six conditions apply, all of them. One, that state is acting illegally um, uh, under, under law, in, in, in modern case under humanitarian law or international law. Two, the effect of that is not confined to the state, but it uh, is uh, spreading instability uh, and threatens war in the region or in the wider world. And three, you have tried all other means, uh, what the Americans call non-kinetic means, in other words, peaceful means, diplomatic means, in order to resolve the issue. Uh, and four, the mechanisms, uh, sorry, five principles. Uh, the, sorry, no, say, uh, the, I'm, not, I'm getting myself confused. And four, the mechanisms you intend to use to resolve that are proportionate to the sin that's being committed. Well, you can't use a nuclear weapon to resolve the issue. And five, you have legitimate authority. In modern case, that's the UN Security uh, Council. And six, and the one that offends people, but it's there in Aquinas, which is there is a reasonable prospect of success. Aquinas says if there is no reasonable prospect of success, then going a just war does not exist because you are needlessly um, losing, you're needlessly destroying lives. And in modern parlance, what prime minister would put 
um, uh, his troops, his young men and women, into war if there wasn't a reasonable prospect of success. And the absence of that sixth pragmatic criterion um, is one of the reasons we don't intervene in places which we otherwise perhaps should. Chechnya, Tibet. Um, so when all those are in place, then effectively it, is de- it has become de facto legitimate to intervene. And again, those bear a very close resemblance to the concepts of the just war put forward by Aquinas and others. Accountability. Again, there's a bit in the book. I think in the presence of my colleagues who are in Bosnia, this business of accountability is really important and very little understood. When I was in Bosnia, I was accountable to the international community. They appointed me and they checked on me and I had to get legitimation and support for them if I took a big action, the Peace Implementation Council. But I very quickly realized we were also accountable to the Bosnian people. If they had rejected at any moment anything that I'd have done, my power would have vanished just like that. And I might as well have left. And an intervener is accountable to the people. You know, it's a scandal that the UN will not make uh, its, its, uh, its public funds and accounts available to the people of Afghanistan. You are accountable to them. And you have to be accountable to them. And the reason why you draw out this narrative is to create something for which you are going to be accountable. So we kept very, very close touch with Bosnian opinion. I had to have a better feel for Bosnian opinion about the actions I was taking than sometimes their own politicians did. And interveners do need to realize that even if they are not de jure accountable to the people in which they intervene, perhaps they should be, by the way, they are de facto, because if you lose their trust and support, you can't succeed. Well, I just want to say a couple of things, because I can see we're reaching well over the end. Oh, no, it's not. It's seven, it, it, it's seven not eight. Yeah. <laughs> but we are yeah, reaching the yeah. end of our time. One is, the answer, is, is to answer the question of Macedonia. In a sense, it was successful, but what I always feel about the Macedonian intervention is that actually it was a failure. I mean, Macedonia should have been prevented years ago. Macedonia was the one country that met all the conditions that the European Union had laid down for recognition. Mm. (laughs) And it wasn't recognized because Greece objected. Macedonia economically suffered far more than anyone else. It had an embargo because of Greece. It uh, uh, was affected by sanctions on Serbia. uh, And it took a huge burden of refugees. Uh, on top of that, Macedonia initially, there was been a UN deployment that was withdrawn two years before the conflict. And although it was on the border with Serbia to prevent, Ser- I, I do believe if that UN deployment had stayed, it was actually withdrawn because Macedonia recognized Taiwan. But nevertheless, the point is that there, anyone could see that the Macedonian conflict was happening. And given that Macedonia was really the good boy among all these new republics, it was outrageous that it wasn't treated as such. And it should never have reached the point it reached in 2001. And what I think is that although the intervention did succeed in stabilizing the situation, unfortunately, Ohrid agreement is rather like Dayton and it's rather like Resolution 1244, and it's rather, as Denisa, who just spoke, has explained to us, like the Artisari plan. (laughs) They all carve carve these states into little ethnic uh, quarters where previously populations were mixed, which makes long-run conflict resolution much more difficult. So I'm a bit more skeptical 
about, I think people jumped too quickly on the Macedonia was a big success. Uh, it was given what happened, but it should never have got to I that point. I think that's true. And the final point, yeah, I'll let, final point I wanted to make is one very good guideline for interventions, I think, is engage women. I don't want to sound essentialist about women being more peace-minded, but what I've found in almost every conflict, I, you always find networks of women who, are, who cross ethnic divides. You always find networks of women who are really concerned about everyday life as opposed to ethnic nationalism. And I think more engagement in women of women in peace processes and in state building would be a very good recipe to follow. Yeah, I think that I, I, that was one of the absences in Bosnia too. There weren't enough, there wasn't enough engagement of women. Although it's kind of sort of male-dominated society, probably that makes it even more necessary. There's just one point I wanted to concentrate on as you finish. Just a thought that was brought up, and I don't think anybody's commented on. So allow me, if I can, Mr. Chairman, just to say a word on it. Um, Mary said that the, that this, the fifth principle was the regional focus. It's actually extremely important. You cannot build, re reconstruct a state uh, cut off from its region. The fact is you have to engage the neighbours. Uh, before we could have a chance for peace in Northern Ireland, we had to engage Dublin. They had a role to play because they were, as it were, the, 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 the sponsor organisation for the Catholics in Ireland, and it's necessary. You know, it does lead you to talk to some pretty unpleasant people like Milosevic and, and, and Tujman. But we had to do it. And if you don't involve the neighbours, you can't reconstruct a peace. And one of the failures of Iraq has been a complete failure to understand that um, Syria, Iran, and the other neighbours have a role to play in this. They may not be the people you want to speak to, but if you, if you weren't prepared to do it, you shouldn't have gone in in the first place. Uh, and uh, the engagement of the neighbours and the regionalisation of a conflict is one of the key areas uh, which uh, you need to make sure is delivered properly if you're going to reconstruct a, nation, a state successfully. Before we bring this uh, event to a close, I would like to say that uh, uh, Lord Ashton has agreed to stay here for a while and sign copies of uh, his book. And if you happen not to have a book yet, uh, uh, the publisher has very conveniently set up a table just outside of the right-hand door, actually left-hand door, uh, and uh, where the books can be purchased. Uh, Lord Ashdown, it has been a pleasure and a privilege to have you here. Thank you very much. Please join me in a applause.